I don't think you can come to the Sermon on the Mount and read it with any, any level of honesty and not come away feeling quite a heavy weight of Jesus' words. And today's text is no exception. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. And I believe it's important for us to come to Jesus' words with seriousness and with weight. We don't come at the Scriptures with levity. This is God's Word to us. And today's text carries with it not only pretty astonishing demands, but also some very stern warnings. Now, as you're finding Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30... I do have some images I want to put on the screen here and see if you guys can help me out. Now, can anyone find the animal that's camouflaged in that picture there? You you all see it? This one's not too hard compared to some other ones. I love pictures like this from nature where the animals in the God-given camouflage that he's given them can't be seen. And so what do we have there? Just tell me, what animal is that? We see the owl right there. Okay, let's try another one here. See him? There he is, standing right there, staring straight at you. There's still some people out there going, what? I don't see it. It's a giraffe right there. All right, y'all see him? Let's try another one. Last one. Oh, you see the frogs. I thought this would be the hardest one. Okay, you see the leaves all around there? And there's, see, there's three frogs here. One, two, and three. They're toads, actually. They're not frogs. Toads hidden there amongst the leaves. Now, there's a lot more pictures like that you can find online of how God has so amazingly created these uh, creatures to where you can't see them when they're in their habitat. Now, when you think about camouflage, you wouldn't know, for most of those animals, like I guess the giraffe was the best one, you wouldn't know it was there unless someone pointed it out to you, unless I'm already telling you to look for an animal. You wouldn't have seen most of those. Okay, because that's the nature of camouflage. You can't see it unless it's shown to you, unless it's revealed to you. Well, in today's text, Jesus is going to continue to tear back the camouflage, the spiritual camouflage, and expose the sin in our human heart. You see, what humans do so well is that we camouflage our sin. We hide it away, and we camouflage it with morality. We camouflage it with certain social expectations that we surround our sin with so that no one can see what's really deep down right here in our heart. And that's why I said when you come to the Sermon on the Mount, you leave with a certain amount of heaviness about it because Jesus is the one who has the ability to pierce right into your heart and to expose sin where it's at. So the Pharisees and the scribes and even most of the Jews of Jesus' day and most people in our day are experts at hiding sin. It comes natural to us. Just like it comes natural to these animals to be hidden away in their habitats. It becomes natural for us in our sinful habitat, which is this world, to hide and to mask sin. And Jesus comes, he tears away the spiritual camouflage. Now we are walking through the life of Jesus in a sermon series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. So if this is your first Sunday with us, or if you've just been visiting with us, you'll find out that this is part of a larger series. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount, but it's part of a larger series of walking verse by verse, chronologically, through the life of Jesus using all the Gospels. And so for the past several weeks, we have been in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we've summarized this Sermon on the Mount, this amazing discourse of Jesus's, as King Jesus speaking to kingdom citizens about kingdom living. It's this King Jesus, he's declared that the kingdom of God is at hand, and now he's speaking to those who are his followers, his disciples, they are kingdom citizens, and he's speaking to them about how people are to live in the kingdom. Now Jesus begins his sermon, as we've already seen, as we've gone through this series, he begins his sermon to his followers with the Beatitudes. Then he makes sure after the Beatitudes to tell his disciples that he had not come to abolish the Old Testament law, but to fulfill it, and that he expects his followers to be keepers and teachers of the law as well. And then he goes on to declare that he expects the righteousness of his followers, the right living or the law-keeping of his followers, to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. 
to exceed that of the most religious folks of his day. Now how could that be possible? Well, it had to be a righteousness that was more than merely external keeping of the law. And instead, it needed to be an internal righteousness that flows out of a heart that's been made new. It is this requirement of a heart righteousness that sets up the rest of chapter 5. And we began looking at the rest of chapter 5 last week. Where Jesus gives us six examples of how the Old Testament law must flow out of our heart. So last week we saw Jesus exposit and explain the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. And in doing so he showed his followers that it had a deeper significance. Jesus showed that anyone who harbored anger or contempt or malice in their hearts were murderers inwardly even if they haven't murdered outwardly and thus were liable to the same judgment. You see, Jesus here in this Sermon on the Mount is raising the law to a higher plane. We see him tightening it. And in doing so, he leaves all men guilty and in need of a Savior. In need of one who can keep the law perfectly on their behalf. In need of him. And so now Jesus keeps this ruthless attack on our hearts going. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, this time he's going to focus in on the seventh commandment. He's going to quote and interpret the seventh commandment. So please stand now as we read Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. This is the word of the Lord. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that you would not allow me to misrepresent you in any sort of way. I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide my mouth, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our ears. Lord, we want to take your word as seriously as you meant it, and not try to explain any of it away. So Jesus, we need your help to do that because we are sinners. We still fight remaining sin in our hearts, and we are prone to wander. Don't let us wander from this text this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. Now, if there are two areas, two topics in which the world thinks that the church is totally out of touch, well, it's probably in our views of human sexuality and in our teachings regarding the doctrine of hell. Okay, Jesus hits both of them in today's passage. So needless to say, this is not a politically correct passage of Scripture. This is not a popular passage of Scripture. This is indeed quite a radical teaching of Jesus's, especially important in our hyper-sexualized culture we live in today. In our day, stirring up lustful intent is not seen as a sin, it's seen as an advertising strategy or as an entertainment choice or as a punchline to a joke or as a sideline diversion at a sporting event. It's no wonder that when people in this culture and in most cultures hear Jesus' words on this subject, they tend to deride the church as being out of touch and prudish. But as we said with the Beatitudes, the world is simply flying upside down. The world thinks it knows what's up and what's down. And in reality, it's flying upside down and it's driving itself into damnation, into the ground. The world is in an increasing web of depravity and bondage. Meanwhile, the scriptures teach us what is truly lovely and good about these things. The Bible indeed has a very high and lovely view of human sexuality. It is to be celebrated as a lovely and good gift that God gave to mankind from Genesis 2 onward. 
But the Bible also has a very honest view of human sexuality. It, like all human desires, was subject to the corruption of the fall. And man began to abuse and degrade God's good gift from Genesis 3 onward. God gave man good desires in this area, which were designed to be outwardly aimed in love toward another. They were to be confined to marriage and channeled toward a spouse. 1 Corinthians 7 teaches that so clearly that it's not about us, it's about another. But sin corrupted those desires and redesigned them to be inwardly focused and aimed at lust. They were twisted and perverted, channeled toward pleasing ourselves. And it's very important that the church talk about these things, both the beauty of how God designed sexuality and talk about the destructiveness of how man has redesigned it. We must, because we live in a world that's totally confused on this topic. Wasn't the saga of World Vision this past week just an example of that? Wasn't that just an example of how not only confused the world is on topics of sexuality, how confused the church is? I mean, I'm not surprised anymore by hardly anything you hear coming across the news these days. But I, I wouldn't have imagined what happened this week with World Vision's first statement and then their reversal. I wouldn't have imagined that 10 years ago. Because the pressure now that churches and organizations and Christians are under to be conformed to the world's redefinition of sexuality is so huge and it's so intense. So we've got to know how to talk about these things. We must talk and preach about these things because we live in a culture saturated with lust and temptations to lust. I was shocked as I was studying this, this passage, came across I think it was in the University of Colorado that was going to do a study recently uh, on the effects of pornography on young people. And so they were going to do this study on the campus, and they had a grant to do it. They had money to do it, but the study never took place. You know why? Because they couldn't find a control group large enough of people who had never seen it on the entire campus. They couldn't come up with a control group of students that had not been exposed to pornography, so they couldn't do the study. That's how pervasive it is in our culture. The pornography industry makes more money than the NFL, the Major League Baseball, the NHL, and the NBA combined. You take all these things that we spend our money on to entertain ourselves, and the pornography industry blows it away. And now consider that most pornography you can get for free. And still, the money that goes into it blows everything else away. That's the world we live in. And so I wrestled heavily with how to present this text this morning. And uh, I want you to know that I believe that as parents, we have got to be more intentional with our children about talking about these things. In the past, especially those like many in this room here who come from more homeschool backgrounds, the tendency has been to shelter and protect and hide away. We've got to know how to strategically let our kids know what the Bible says about the glory and beauty of sexuality and how the world has corrupted it. So they're prepared because, my friends, it's coming like a tsunami. Like a tsunami. Remember those pictures of the tsunami in Southeast Asia? And there were people that had videos of families playing on the beach. And next thing you know, there's this wave coming. Boom, they're gone. That is what's coming if it's not already here. We got to know what to do about these things. So we come to passages like this one today. And we can't just skirt over them. I was actually very, very, very disappointed to see as I was looking for some material on this text and looking and seeing what, perhaps how some other pastors have, have attempted to preach this text, I was disappointed to see how many skipped over it. And the next one. The next one's about divorce. We've got to not skip over the things that Jesus refuses to skip over. And so here we are at this text today. Jesus' words about these things are relevant. They are massively relevant. They are culturally relevant. So we're being culturally relevant this morning. We're just not being relevant in the way the culture likes, which is what most people think of when they think of culturally relevant. 
All Scripture is culturally relevant. So let's look at this text today, Matthew 5, 27. It says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Now Jesus here, as we've already stated, is quoting the seventh commandment. That's Exodus 20, verse 14. Just like he did last week, he's quoting this commandment, but then he's going to assert his authority over the text with the very next thing he says. The very next thing he says is, But I say to you, But I say, he is putting his words not on par with, but above the words of written scripture. And we must remember that Jesus is not contradicting or contrasting what he believes with what Moses wrote, nor is he setting aside Moses' words and declaring them to be abolished. No, he's giving us the right and fuller meaning of the text. Remember, the Pharisees were interested in minimizing the law by limiting it to external actions that they could muster up the ability to keep. But Jesus comes on the scene and maximizes or ramps up the meaning of the text. The Pharisees sought to loosen it. Jesus came to tighten it. But by tightening it, he showed that the law, as it was always intended to do, exposes the human heart and drives men to God in need of repentance and faith. So Jesus says, but I say to you, verse 28 here, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here's the first thing in your notes this morning. Jesus reveals God's radical requirement for sexual purity. Jesus reveals God's radical requirement for sexual purity. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus exposes the previously hidden, camouflaged sin, in this case, lust. The scribes and the Pharisees, they only saw this law, the seventh commandment, as an external behavior issue. As a matter of fact, they oftentimes related this commandment more to stealing than to the heart. It was all about avoiding taking another man's wife. They failed to see the law was meant to expose corrupt sexual longings that reside deep in the heart of every man and every woman. This text, friends, isn't meant for just men, by the way. I know Jesus is speaking to men here, but obviously the application of this text is broader than that. And I hope you see that. And if you don't see it, I can talk about that afterwards. But I don't want women leaving here saying, well, I'm glad my husband heard this message, but it has nothing to do with me. This is about people. The Pharisees should have known better. They should have known what the law was actually pointing to. In their zeal to keep the letter, they had failed to see the spirit of the law. Remember, Jesus came, he said, to fulfill the law and the prophets, meaning the whole Old Testament. And had they read the law in light of the whole of God's revelation, they would have seen that David's breaking of the seventh commandment didn't begin in the bedroom. It began on the roof. David's breaking of the seventh commandment didn't begin when Bathsheba came over to his place. It began when he was standing on a roof. And they should have known that. The Pharisees should have known that. Had they looked at the whole of God's revelation, they would have seen Job begging and praying and showing God and declaring to God that he had kept the seventh commandment, but he kept it in a much deeper way than what these Pharisees were trying to do. Job chapter 31 verse 1. Look at what Job says. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity." If my step is turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if my spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat, and let what grows for me be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman, and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges." For that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon. And it would burn to the root all my increase. Job says here, he knows that keeping the seventh commandment is about the heart. It's about his heart going after his eyes. 
God had already shown the Pharisees these things through Job and through David. He had shown them that adultery didn't begin at the moment of physical contact. It began with roaming eyes and a covetous heart. So Jesus isn't giving a new commandment here. He's simply illuminating the old commandment so that his disciples and anyone else who's listening would see that God sees the heart and wants purity from the heart. So Jesus lays out a radical requirement. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now we need to focus in here on a couple of things the text does not say. Okay, the text does not say whoever looks at a woman has committed adultery with her in his heart. It says whoever looks what? With lustful intent. Jesus is not condemning us seeing women or seeing men, seeing the opposite sex. He's not saying that we are to put blinders on it and not look at people. That's what the Pharisees tried to do. That's not what he's saying. We need to understand that it's very possible to see and even admire the goodness of God's creation and not lust after it. The type of looking in this text means a studied look. It's not just noticing. It's not just observing or seeing. It means to fixate one's eyes upon, to meditate upon. It means to study someone with sexual intention. Intent is the key here. The ESV does very well to translate it, looking with lustful intent and not just looking with lust. The look described here is a look that has adulterous intentions behind it. So Jesus is not telling us that we can't look at the opposite sex. Now let me be clear here. There is a way to look at the opposite sex that will inevitably lead to lust. Looking at an immodestly dressed person, for example, will almost always lead you to lust. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't be careful where our eyes go. We should be careful. But what I am saying is that it's not sinning to notice or even admire the beauty of the human body when it is presented in a modest way. It is not wrong to think a person is beautiful and to praise God for that. It's like going in a I don't know, let's say you go into an art exhibit and you see a painting. It's, it's okay to love and enjoy the painting. It's wrong to steal it. It's wrong to begin to plot as to how you can get it. It's wrong to think, I've got to have that or I'm going to die. That's what's wrong. Natural attraction and admiration of beauty is not bad. It is a good gift from God. What God condemns is looking with a desire to have it for ourselves. Remember, corrupted sexual desires are all about us. Not the other person. I must also point out that Jesus is not saying that sexual desire in and of itself is wrong. Sexual appetites are powerful and lovely human appetites when they are pointed in and channeled in the right direction and in the right relationship. Now this word here, lustful intent, the word is epithumeo, which means to desire, to long for, to set one's heart upon, to covet. Matter of fact, The translators of the Septuagint, which was the the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used in Jesus' day, the translators of the Septuagint used this word epithumeo to translate the Hebrew word for covet. So it means to covet. Now, I I told you earlier, the Pharisees related the seventh commandment with the eighth commandment, which was you shall not steal. They related those two things together and said, well, adultery is just about stealing, but Jesus by using this word, epithumeo, is actually tying the seventh commandment closer to the tenth commandment. The Pharisees had tied it to the eighth, you shall not steal. And there is a component of adultery that is about stealing, but it's mostly about the heart. It's about coveting, which is that tenth and all-encompassing commandment. The heart is the factory of adultery. John Stott said, deeds of shame are preceded by fantasies of shame. What does looking with lustful intent do to human sexuality? Well, it trivializes it for one thing. It makes the other person a commodity, a mere object to be obtained. It dehumanizes both the person being looked at and the looker. For lust lowers us to the level of animals acting on prime instincts and hormonal impulses. Sexual desire is human, but friends, lust is subhuman. The views on these things today in our culture are grotesquely animalistic. Beastly. When you hear people talking about human sexuality in our culture, it sounds like they're talking about animals. The world says, don't inhibit yourself. Be free. Be sexually mature. Be liberated. Act on your instincts without questioning them. Don't repress yourself. 
It feels good, do it. That's nothing more than what animals do, friends. But Jesus comes and says, no, man is not merely an animal. He is made to love in a way that glorifies his maker. He's made in the image of God. So Jesus, unlike so many evangelicals in the world today, is not afraid to speak very clear, unambiguously about sexuality. He speaks truth with facts. But to even claim that there are objective facts about sexuality in today's world is to invite scorn and ridicule upon oneself. This whole thing this week with World Vision just had me in a tizzy. I was upset when it happened in the, the reversal. I was confused by, you know, did they really pray about it? They said they had prayed for years about this decision they made, and they reversed it in two days. And then I get on and see people who I'm assuming would be happy about World Vision's shift back to a biblical view of sexuality, then complaining that we should be more embracing, we should be more open. And I'm thinking, what is happening in our world? Jesus isn't afraid to be direct and clear. So we must proclaim it. But before we proclaim it, we must live it. We must recognize that our hearts are lust factories and we must destroy that sin. So Jesus now goes, not only has he revealed God's radical requirement for sexuality, Jesus also calls for radical remedies to fight for sexual purity. Radical remedies. If your right eye causes you to sin, and the word here for causing to sin is scandaliso, where we get our word scandalized from, really means to cause one to stumble. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Now I hope I don't have to explain to you that Jesus is intentionally using hyperbolic language here to drive home a point, to drive home how serious he is about this. He is not saying we must go and mutilate ourselves. We know he isn't talking about that because what are you going to do when you run out of eyes? How are you going to fight lust when you run out of hands to chop off? He's not talking about chopping off body parts literally. He's talking about being so serious about this that you're doing violence against sin. You're fighting it with all your heart, with all your passion, with all your mind. The mind's eye is able to still conjure up images even when physical eyes are missing. So Jesus is not telling us to mutilate our bodies. Unfortunately, one of our early church fathers, Origen, he thought that was what Jesus was teaching, and he went and emasculated himself as a result of this teaching. That was then condemned in the Council of Nicaea in 325. Jesus is not telling us to do that. He's intentionally giving us over-the-top examples to show us how serious he is about us dealing with our sin. He is calling us to fight lust, to kill lust, to do violence against lust, to wage war against lust. If you are a Christian, friend, you are at war. Next week's memory verse, at least part of it, is this. 1 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Whether you like it or not, you are at war. You are at war. So since our fleshly passions are already engaged in war against us, we might as well make war against them. Notice the two parts of the body that Jesus chooses to focus on. The right eye. The eye, my friends, is the window to the mind. What we see is what we think about. The Bible puts the mind and the heart on the same plane. I hope you, you know that, that. It's not talking about our emotions here. The heart is essentially the same thing as the mind when it comes to the Scriptures. They're one and the same. So to lust in the heart is to lust in the mind. And to look upon someone who is not your spouse with lustful intent is to think wrongly about them. It's a mind thing. So by telling us to rip out the eye, Jesus is wanting us to take radical measures to fix our thinking. We are not to meditate or to fixate upon a man or a woman that God has not given us to be our spouse. Instead, we must replace those thoughts. That woman or that man is not our husband or wife. Therefore, to think about them like they are is to think lying thoughts. And Satan is the father of lies. He wants you to think about lies. So he wants you to think about that person like they're your spouse, but they're not really your spouse. So you got to replace the lies with truth. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We must fix our eyes on the gospel and on the cross 
on the majesty of our Savior, on the horrors of His crucifixion, on the glory of His resurrection. When you fix your minds on that, when you fix your eyes and your mind on the cross, it becomes very hard to think about porn. When you replace those lies with the truth. Your eyes are the window to your mind. But Jesus goes on. He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, throw it away. If eyes are referring to our thought life, then hands are simply referring to the actions that follow. We must take radical measures to prevent ourselves from acting on lustful impulses. So Jesus is simply saying that radical action is needed in order to fight sin in both our thoughts and our actions. And it may be costly. Notice that it's the right eye and the right hand. Especially in Jesus' day, the side of honor was the right side. Okay? People that were left-handed were actually looked down upon in that culture. Right-handedness was the normal thing, right? That was the way it was supposed to be. And so the right side of you was the more honorable side of your body. So if someone had to choose to lose a hand, they would choose to lose the left. But Jesus saying that we must fight sin by being willing to give up what's most valuable. We must be willing to give up what's most honorable to us. What's most important to us. And when it comes to fighting sexual sin, we must willfully do violence, do war against that sin. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We are to kill sin. John Owen famously said, and I'm sure you've heard this before, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's a war going on. We need to see it as a matter of life and death. It is really that important. Do you remember the story of Aaron Ralston? He was a mountain climber, I think it was in 2003. He was climbing in some canyons in Utah and fell, and a boulder fell on his arm. And he couldn't get his arm out from underneath that boulder. And do you remember what he did? He took his multi-tool, which was actually very dull. He took his dull multi-tool and began to saw off his arm. Why? Because it was a matter of life or death. That's how we have to view sin. It's hugely important to our eternal destiny. What drastic actions, what dull blade is God calling on you to pull out today and cut something off with? For some, it might simply mean stricter accountability. Some sort of blocking software on your computer. For some, it might mean getting rid of TV or cable or getting rid of the internet or even computer and devices whatsoever. People say, I couldn't survive without my phone. Yes, you can. People have done it for thousands of years. I couldn't survive without the internet. Yes, you can. Don't buy in. That's a lie. Replace the lie with the truth. I can live without this because you know what? I'd rather live without it than to die with it. Maybe you need to cut off watching certain TV shows or going to certain movies or not going to a certain event or staying away from certain restaurants. I don't know what it is for you. Perhaps it's leaving a certain company you work for. Maybe that's the hard arm that God's telling you to cut off because there's temptation in this company. And you can't stay there any longer. Maybe it's ending a friendship. A friend who continues to entice you toward lust. It could go on and on and on. What we have to be willing to do is leave everything behind and run. Just like Joseph. Leave it and run. 1 Corinthians six eighteen says, flee from sexual immorality. I love Spurgeon's, um, this little quote from Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, the best antidote to temptation is often a very good pair of legs and the king's highway. I love that. Spurgeon just has this great way of saying things like that. Run! You know what situation you are in, friends, when temptation, the temptation to lust comes to you. You need to identify that situation and kill it. But friends, I must offer up a word of caution here. This is not about making a bunch of rules and hopping through a bunch of hoops and hoping that rule changing can somehow change your heart. Don't become twice as much as the Pharisees by replacing their legalism with a new one. We put in radical steps because our heart is changed, not to change it. 
The radical steps are there because we want to fight this sin now. We hate it. It's abhorrent to us. We can't stand it anymore. It's still indwelling and it's pulling on us and it's telling us lies. And we can't stand it. We have a new heart and so we're going to fight it. It's not about, well, I'm going to just come up with a bunch of rules to keep and hopefully I will end up doing that stuff that everyone else is doing. And if I do that, I guess I'll be good with God. That is, that is a lie from hell. We put in radical steps to fight lustful thoughts because we're now followers of Christ. And so we fight them even while we still struggle with them. This is not about a list of do's and don'ts that all men and women must keep. I can't make your list of hands and eyes to gouge out. I'm not you. This is not about that. It's not about making, I can give you some suggestions. It's about you fighting your sin. You fight it in the power of the Holy Spirit and with the sword of the Spirit. Notice he says, if your right eye or right hand causes you to sin. If. We need to embrace all the words of Jesus. If. I don't know what's causing you to sin. But if this item is, then cut it off. Or if this item is, then cut it off. Your if might not be the same as my if. I remember once I was, um, I think I was like in ninth grade or eighth grade. We were home on furlough in the States and we were watching Wheel of Fortune on TV. And watching Wheel of Fortune, just sitting there, just having a good time, just trying to solve the puzzle. And my aunt walks in. I was at my cousin's house. And she turns off the TV. She says, don't watch that. I said, what are you talking about? She says, you're lusting after Vanna White. I said, no, I'm not. Vanna White's not turning me on. I just want to see her turn the next letter. I wanted to know how many vowels were in that phrase. That's all. My aunt saw fit to give me the arm to cut off that wasn't an arm I needed to cut off. That's not what we're talking about here. Making lists. Okay, let's have a Harbin's list for fighting lust. It's about you fighting it in your own heart through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the sword of the Spirit, God's Word. Romans 8, 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So we have the resources to do the battle. We have the Holy Spirit. We have His Word. The Holy Spirit grants us motivation and the power to defeat sin. But it is a bloody battle that requires radical remedies. That's because there are radical ramifications if we don't kill it. Jesus warns us of radical ramifications if we don't fight for sexual purity. He says this, For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Friends, eternity is at stake. The ramifications are radical. They are horrendous. People do not like the doctrine of hell in our day and age. People want to explain it away, soften it somehow, but I dare say that to dismiss the doctrine of hell is to dismiss the words of Christ. No one, no one, friends, in the Bible talks more about hell than Jesus does. To deny hell is to deny the very clear teachings of Jesus. A few observations on hell this morning from this passage and from one parallel passage. Number one, hell is a motivator. Hell is a motivator. Jesus uses hell here as a motivation for us to seek purity. And who are we to argue with him? I know it's not right to use hell as a motivator. That's what people tell you. Oh, you can't scare people into heaven. I know that. And this isn't the only motivator Jesus uses. But Jesus is using hell as a motivator in this passage. And who are we to argue with him? If he wants to use hell as a motivator, he can. And he motivates us in a lot of other ways in Scripture. But here, hell is used as a motivator. Second thing to notice about hell from these passages. Hell is a real place. Jesus isn't speaking in the realm of the hypothetical or the abstract. He is speaking about hell like it is a very real place that you will go. A physical location you will go to. So hell is real. Hell is a motivator. Hell is real. Number three, hell is horrible. If you back up to verse 22 in the passage we studied last week, you'll see Jesus calls it the hell of fire. 
Hell isn't merely a place of separation from God. It is a place of torment. He uses the word fire to describe it. So hell is a motivator. Hell is real. Hell is horrible. Hell is also eternal. Now for this one, I want to go to a a passage that's similar to this one where Jesus speaks in Mark chapter 9, verse 43. Jesus says this, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell. To unquenchable fire. Do you hear that? Unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Those are Jesus' words. So hell is a motivator, hell is real, hell is horrible, hell is eternal, and friends, hell is just. God has every right to condemn lawbreakers to hell. And Jesus has just shown us so far in chapter 5 that we've broken the 6th commandment and the 7th commandment, and in the process, the 8th commandment, because it does have a component of stealing about it, and we've also broken the 10th commandment because we're coveting. So he's already shown us that in simply these first two sections we've looked at. And hell is a just punishment for lawbreakers. You may object, fiery hell for lusting? Fiery hell for anger? How is that just? The problem is, we've lost sight of what real justice is. Today, people object to an eternal hell, saying that a just God wouldn't condemn man to eternal torment for sins committed in a relatively short span of time. So the argument goes, how can God send someone to hell for all eternity for sins they committed in time and space right here and now? That doesn't seem just to me. To exact eternal punishment for sins committed in a limited period of time and space seems to be unfair. But friends, we need to think better. All of our bad doctrine comes from bad thinking. Let's just think for a moment. We know that this is a false objection and we know it because it's written on our consciences. And let me explain how. Let's say someone shoots someone with a gun. Let's say some perpetrator comes and he shoots someone with a gun and five minutes later that person dies. And if the person, the shooter, is caught and brought to justice, society doesn't punish that man for five minutes. Society puts him in jail for life. We know our conscience says even if a crime is committed in a short period of time that the punishment can still be much longer than the crime. Because it depends on the level of the crime, what was committed. Life in jail for a five-minute crime, we know that is just. Not only are punishments not relative to the duration of the crime and to the severity of the crime, so too the severity of the punishment is in relation to whom the crime was committed against. So again, let's take our man here, and again, our consciences bear witness to this. If that same man shoots a dog and that dog dies, he may spend a good bit of time in jail, but not a lifetime. Why? Because the value of a dog pales in comparison to the value of a human life. Not only that, we differentiate even within people. If a man just kills any average citizen, it's murder. But if he kills the president, it's what? It's an assassination. So we know that there's different degrees of punishment based upon who the crime is committed against and how bad the crime was. And so we can keep on talking about this if we want to, but it doesn't matter how much time we spent sinning. It does matter who we sinned against. And every sin is a treasonous crime against a holy God. So even one sin in one moment of time against God, who is the only supremely valuable, infinitely worthy being in all the universe, deserves an eternity in hell. Sin is treasonous, murderous insurrection against an infinitely perfect God. It deserves infinite punishment. And so Jesus says that the sin of lustful intent in the heart, if it goes unforgiven and unrepented of, leads to hell. This is not to say that if you've ever committed adultery in your heart or even physical adultery that you're inescapably bound for hell. This is not saying that sexual sin is the unpardonable sin. No, quite the contrary. Jesus' words leave us all guilty so that we all turn from our sin and turn to him in faith. You see, Jesus delights to lift up broken sinners who deserve condemnation and say to them, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus delights to take sinners broken by terrible consequences of their sexual sin and comfort us by saying, the Lord also has put away your sin. 
you shall not die. Jesus delights to accept the loving worship of repentant sinners whose sins, though they are many, are forgiven. When he comes and says to us, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Jesus delights to come to us, though we have adulterous hearts, and say to us, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. All of those quotes that I just did were from passages of Scripture where Jesus was speaking to adulterers. Friends, those of us who have drunk of that well have been forgiven. We once were these adulterers, but we are no more. Colossians 3, 5 says, Put to death whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked. When you were living in them. But we walk in them no more. We have been born again. Our hearts have been made new. And we have come out from underneath the just condemnation of the law. We have put our faith in Jesus. And he has become our law keeper. And his righteousness has been credited to our account. So that now, though we are still fighting indwelling sin, it is a fight. We are now winning. And thus we no longer are counted as adulterous persons that we once were. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you know what the next verse is? It says, And such were some of you. But you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you, but not anymore. It's not that people who commit these sins cannot be forgiven. It's that people who have been forgiven can no longer commit these sins. Let me say that again. It's not that people who commit these sins cannot be forgiven. It's that those who have been forgiven can no longer commit these sins. We can't do it anymore. Why? Because we're new But be warned, friend, if you willfully remain in the sin of adulterous lust without any godly grief that leads you to repentance, without any fighting, without any turning from sin, without any pleading for forgiveness, without any progressive victory in your life, you may be in the danger of the fires of hell. That doesn't feel good to say, but I don't know how any other way to say it. Because it's what Jesus says. Friends, please hear now how serious Jesus is. Believer, if you are truly in Christ, you must feel the weight of your sin and you must fight hard against it. Do whatever you can to kill sin. You should be experiencing progressive victory over these sins. Unbeliever, you need Christ. You must turn from this sin, this warped mutation of God's good gift. You must turn from it and turn to Christ. Turn to the one who created you and created you to be a sexual being but the one who lives in a way that he designed you to live. Jesus lived a pure and perfect life for us. He lived it on our behalf for all who would come to him by faith. His purity is for us, and if we confess him as Lord, his purity will be manifested in us. And this is a community project. We do this together. Friends, we may think that we have our sin cleverly camouflaged. Let me just say this. I have no question in a room this big with this many people There are believers in here struggling with the sin of lustful intent. And you may think you have it very cleverly camouflaged right now. Jesus sees it. He sees it and he's calling you out right now. He's calling you out to do what he has empowered you to do. And that is to kill that sin. Put it to death now. And whatever you need to do. And we'll do it together. I can't quit that job. Yes, you can. We're going to surround you with prayer. And we're going to do it. We're going to help you kill that sin. I can't get rid of the internet. Yes, you can. Your brothers and sisters here will help you. Guess what? We'll send you snail mail. You can do it and we can do it together. Because the Holy Spirit resides in us and he's given us his sword of the Spirit. So let's pick up that sword and let's start chopping off some hands and gouging out some eyes together. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I praise you and thank you that Jesus does not skirt around these issues. That he speaks very frankly and openly about issues that the church today is embarrassed to talk about. I thank you, Father, that you designed it that way because we know in our own sinful flesh we would skirt these issues. And if we're going to be people of the word, which means we're going to study it, we're going to be like Bereans who examine it, we're going to be like Ezra was when he lifted up the word and began to preach it and explain it verse by verse, that we're not going to be able to skip over Jesus' teachings and therefore you're going to do some hard, hard heart surgery on us as we progress. I praise you for that. I praise you for the way you designed your word and how you designed it to work. But Father, I grieve because I know my own heart. I know how much struggle I continue to have with these sins. And I pray, Lord, that you do a work in my heart and you do a work in the heart of every single person in this room. And I pray for us as parents in this room that you would grant us wisdom to know how to minister to our children and to equip them and to get them ready for the tsunami that's here. To teach them how to stand strong and to fight sin. Oh, Father, I pray that we wouldn't view our role of parents as we're a factory to put out perfect kids. If we think that's what it's about, we're going to put out little Pharisees that are going to get crushed under the wave. We are a factory of equipping little sinful corrupt kids to fight the battle of faith. So God, I pray that you help us to do that. We know our children aren't perfect and they won't be perfect on this side of heaven. But God, if they're believers, we want to see them growing in their sanctification. And so we want to put the word of God in their heart. We want to, put, we want to equip them, Lord, with the, with the ability to fight their own sin in their own heart. And if they're not believers, then Lord, we want to keep sharing the gospel with them every day. So God, I pray, Lord, for you just to move in this church. And Lord, if there be anything that I've said in here that was not in line and in step with your word and with the Holy Spirit, then Father, I just ask your forgiveness for that. Lord, if there was anything I said in here that wasn't appropriate for this audience, I ask your forgiveness for that as well. And I ask, Lord, for your grace to cover our foolishness. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.